Welcome to episode 25 of Your Financial Planner, Now What? I'm your host, Hannah Moore. On today's episode, I'm excited to bring you Dave Yeske. Dave's resume is an impressive one to say the least. He has been practicing financial planning since 1990. He is the past chair of the National Financial Planning Association. He has his doctorate in finance from Golden Gate University and is currently the practitioner editor of the Journal of Financial Planning. He received the Heart of Financial Planning Award from the FPA, and if you talk with him for any amount of time, his passion for financial planning is evident. The topic today, which I believe is an important one, is how financial planners need to incorporate the academic research into their day-to-day interactions with clients. So let's jump right in. Well, thanks for joining us today, Dave. My pleasure. For those of the listeners that don't know who you are, can you give us just a brief summary of kind of your qualifications, if you would? Sure. Um, I am managing director of Yeski Bui, which is a financial planning firm with offices in San Francisco and Vienna, Virginia, which is just outside D.C. I've been practicing financial planning for over 25 years at this point. I have been very involved as a volunteer. I'm a past national president of the Financial Planning Association. I chaired the research center team at FPA and the Academic Advisory Council. I've been teaching in Golden Gate University's graduate financial planning degree program for over 20 years. I'm currently the uh, director of that that program. My academic background is a a bachelor's degree and master's degree in economics from the University of San Francisco and a doctorate in finance from Golden Gate University. And in in completing that doctorate, I was actually able to do research into a financial planning question of interest for me, which involved the different strategy-making approaches that financial planners take in engaging with their clients and developing and and implementing recommendations. Uh, So that was, I felt very fortunate to be able to to take a deep dive in the strategy literature and relate it to what we do as financial planners, because I think really the financial planner's role as strategist and change agent is one of our most powerful. I mean, not to get on too much of a tangent, but the reality is the mathematics of financial planning is pretty simple. I mean, most of what we do are various applications of time value of money. The hard part is, is being a change agent, is being a coach, is helping people actually make, affect the changes in their lives that will be necessary in order to, to carry out our recommendations and achieve their goals. As you did your doctoral work on this topic, like what, what did you find? As, what were the results that you found? I developed a model that proposed that there were five different modes through which planners interacted with clients and developed and implemented recommendations. And if you think of them on a, on a spectrum that ranges from a spectrum of client engagement or the relative role of client and advisor, so it ranged from one end of the spectrum called the planner-driven mode in which the planner is driving the process. And this was probably throughout the history of financial advice, the most dominant mode where the planner, the planner shows up with solutions often without much reference to who the client is or their circumstances. It's like the old saying that when the only tool you have is a hammer, pretty soon everything starts to look like a nail. The next one along the way was the data-driven mode. And that's very that's uh, was the very dominant mode in the financial planning profession during the early decades. And it's one in which the the advisor, the planner does draw the client into the process to get some information in terms of their goals or basic family structure and develops and develops quantitative solutions that are that are roughly uh, matched to the client's needs. Uh, but it's really still the client has a little more engagement in this process, but it's still dominated by the advisor. 
The third, the middle mode, if you will, is the policy-driven mode. And policies are about developing compact decision rules that can be guides to clients in changing circumstances. Uh, and my partner, Elisa Bowie, and I have written quite a bit and presented quite a bit on the notion of policy-based financial planning. And that's one of the most balanced modes because you cannot develop effective policies that are going to be uh, a touchstone for clients and will be a good guide during changing external circumstances, including, including very volatile times, um, unless they see themselves reflected in it. So it requires a good discovery process. The, the fourth mode along this spectrum, as we're moving ever more towards uh, the client's the, a growing involvement by the client, is the relationship-driven mode. And this is a mode that I think is largely typified by what uh, a lot of people refer to as life planning, where it's about interior exploration of the client's motivations and history and values uh, and, and does not have uh, as much focus on the quantitative and solutions dimension. And the final mode is the client-driven mode. And client-driven mode is really about validation. This is where the, the, the planner is almost pushed out of the picture. Uh, and the client is driving the process and, and the, the advisor only enters into the process uh, at the level of validating whatever decisions the, the client may have made. What I did is once developing this model, I then related it to measures of client trust and relationship commitment. You know, on the one hand, you could say, well, well, wouldn't you want to relate your model to outcomes, to client financial success? And the answer is perhaps, but the one problem with that <clears throat> is I would need to do a 20-year longitudinal study in order to gather that kind of data, and I didn't want to spend 20 years completing my dissertation. So instead, I looked at these measures, which have, are, have, have become well-developed within research in the financial planning field, um, client trust and relationship commitment is a construct that's been shown to be highly correlated with um, clients having a high propensity to reveal personal and financial information, um, highly associated with clients' propensity to actually implement recommendations, uh, associated with what's known as functional conflict, which means when, when conflicts do arise, they get resolved effectively. And so when you think about it, those are actually characteristics that are, that are signals of a successful financial planning engagement. And the, I guess the, the last thing I'll say is that you have to look for secondary measures because that's what clients do. You know, clients, financial planning is one of those things, one of those professional practices that has what's known as high credence properties which means that clients have difficulty judging the quality of the advice even after it's been delivered. You know, unlike getting your haircut, which has low credence properties. You know, you stand up, you look in the mirror, you know if you've got a high-quality haircut. Clients don't know the quality of the advice they got from us until many decades have passed and they will discover whether or not they reached their goals. So they look at other ways to, to judge their planner and to develop levels of trust and commitment. Well, what I found was the policy-driven mode, the one that I struck the most equal balance between the advisor's engagement and the, and, the plan, and the client's engagement, was the one that had the highest levels of trust and commitment. Now, interestingly, and, and I guess as I'm going to say as predicted, the least balanced modes, the planner-driven mode where the planner was almost exclusively driving the process and the client-driven mode where the client was driving the process, those had very low association with client trust and relationship commitment, as, as I predicted that would be the case. But what was interesting, after the policy-driven mode, I might have predicted that the relationship-driven mode would be the next highest uh, uh, 
would have the next highest correlation with trust and commitment, but it wasn't. It was the data-driven mode. And I found, I found that interesting. And when, uh, when discussing it with some clients, their response uh, you know, is just one response, but I thought it was interesting. They said, well, of course that makes sense. We want to have a good relationship with our, with our planner, but first we have to ha- know you have a big brain. I, I've met advisors who have allowed the life planning dimension or the life planning activities to come to dominate their work with clients to the exclusion of the more traditional quantitative analysis that was part of financial planning. And I think that that's what I found was instructive on that front. We need to maintain balance. You know, the tools and techniques we've learned through life planning to, to do better discovery and, and, and have a deeper understanding of who our clients are is important, but not to the exclusion of, of the quantitative skills to w- that, that this should be in the service to. Well, what I find interesting about this, and we're going to be talking a lot about research and how important that is, but the whole discussion we just had was almost irrelevant a business model. I mean, you could be a virtual planner versus somebody in a large firm versus a boutique firm, and this would apply. Absolutely. I, I think you can practice all the different modes, uh, strategy-making modes, as I refer to them, um, via any, any mechanism and via any model. You know, if you have a virtual practice and you're dealing with clients via, you know, via Zoom or Skype and, and, and you know, remotely by email and telephone, um, you can still build relationships. You can still, you know, you can still do all of the things you need to do to learn who they are and then to match what you've learned with the quantitative techniques, with the financial planning best practices in order to develop appropriate policies to guide clients. And I actually, one of the things I've, that we've always proposed is that policy, a policy-based approach in many ways is extremely relevant for younger clients um, and, you know, the, the, and, and therefore for the younger advisors who may be, who may be uh, cultivating millennial clients. Because a lot of these clients, many of the big decisions they'll make will be in the future. You know, their lives are in flux. They're building their careers. They're getting started. They're, they're in the early stages of their career and their, and their life cycle. And so rather than analyzing all of their stuff before they have a lot of stuff, it's better to give them policies for how to make decisions as things arise in the coming months and years. Um, so policy-based approach is very powerful, and it could be practiced. I mean, I've, I've built some very deep relationships with clients that I've never met face-to-face by virtual means, just because I engaged them as human beings and, and had a process for doing so. So, yes, I agree. <laughs> this is the other thing that, unfortunately, I'm, I'm inclined to do is give the long answer to the short question. <laughs> well, for somebody who's interested in learning more about this, I mean, do you have a papers out there or articles I could go read? Where could they go find more information? We do. Actually, the most recent uh, um, paper that we wrote on this subject was um, policy-based financial planning as decision architecture, in which we place, we position policy-based financial planning in the context of sort of uh, what we call dis- behavioral finance and what we call decision architecture. Thaler and Sunstein in their book Nudge, they called it they called it choice architecture, but it's a um, I think it's the most appropriate framework within which to view it, and it's about not only bringing to bringing to bear uh, financial planning best practices and forming these compact decision rules, but doing it with the idea that it's a way of nudging clients in the decision of, in the direction of better decisions. So that was published in the Journal of Financial Planning. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to forget that. I think it was published in uh, 
like November of 2015. But if anyone just goes to the journal, the journal uh, uh, website, fpajournal.org, uh, they can search the archive and just look for policy-based financial planning or type in Yeski or Bowie, B-U-I-E, and, uh, and you should come up, the article will come up and you can download it. Um, there is also, actually, there's also a, a video of a conference presentation I gave on the subject on our website. If someone goes to our website and under resources looks at videos, they'll find a presentation on this topic as well. One of the things that I, whenever I hear your name, I always associate it with that research, how important that research is to financial planners and how we need to pair that up together. Could you give me just a little perspective on where has financial been financial planning been in terms of research and where do you want it to go? Well, so financial planning historically has, on the quantitative side, it, you know, to a significant degree, we've tried to adopt ideas from finance and economics and apply them in the individual realm. But a lot of the actual ways in which we implement those, a lot of our best practices have been, the, they've arisen from opinion or sort of repetition and, and uh, uh, intuition. And it's really our position that it's time, if we're going to be a true profession, it's time for us to put an empirical foundation under those best practices in order to have a more evidence-based approach. Because when we think about it, we might have an opinion or a belief about what's about the most efficacious way to advise a client on any number of subjects, whether it's risk management or investing or um, you know, the uses of insurance, how to make decisions about retirement options. A lot of people have opinions and a lot of opinions get published in all the financial planning magazines without actually being tested against the data. And admittedly, that's effortful. But if we're going to be, again, if we're going to be a true profession, we have to make the effort, or at least we have to encourage academics to make the effort. You know, we have to share the practitioners who know what the critical questions of the day are, need to have better relationships with the with the academics who know how to conduct formal research. Because at the end of the day, it would be like saying, well, the Food and Drug Administration is going to release this new drug because a couple of people thought that it sounded like a good idea. No, instead they run massive clinical trials to determine if the drug is actually efficacious or if it's just there's a placebo effect or if there are negative side effects under certain circumstances. Uh, they test all of that and they test it against the evidence. And would any consumer of drugs want them to do otherwise? Well, why would a consumer of financial planning advice not want to be getting recommendations that have also been tested against the evidence? A lot of what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me in terms of like the numbers, the quantitative stuff. But you're implying that this should also be done kind of to the art of financial planning, if you would. Is that right? That is absolutely right. You know, there's the phrase, the art and science of financial planning has been around for a long time. I've seen it used as, as the tagline on many conferences. And historically, when you hear the, the art and science of financial planning, what people have thought was, oh, okay, well, the science of financial planning is going to be where we crunch the numbers, where we do our time value of money analysis, or where we run some Monte Carlo simulations. And the art part is going to be the interior part. That's going to be the psychology, the emotions of clients. Uh, it's going to be the behavioral dimension. That's going to be the art part. And I would argue we argue, at least and I do, that actually there's a lot of science on that side. When you look at the interior realm, when you talk about counseling, when you talk about human behavior, um, there is a, there's a huge amount of real science that's been conducted according to the, to the scientific method underpinning 
what we what we can and should know about the interior dimension. And so there are sciences of the, there are sort of exterior sciences, the quantitative, and there are interior sciences, sort of the personal, the emotional, the intellectual, the behavioral. Um, and there are sciences in both realms. So when we think about the art and science of financial planning, we think of it as the artful application of both the interior and exterior sciences that are available to us. It's interesting because a lot of people who've been on this podcast, you know, I always ask them for for their advice for young advisors. And one of the consistent pieces of advice I hear is that people need to really work on that relationship piece, that empathy, you know, how you relate to clients, that communication side of it. I always follow up with, well, how do you get better? And it kind of stumps a lot of people. But you're saying that there's research out there to really help advisors, especially young advisors, to get better at that art, that communication, that counseling side of it. Is that right? That is exactly right. There is research out there if you look for it. So for example, Carol Anderson and Deanna Sharp published some research a few years ago in which they took some of the communication skills and techniques and topics that are associated with life planning, and they actually tested them against the evidence for uh, which were most efficacious, which were, which were most valued by clients, which were most highly associated with, with measures of client trust and relationship commitment. And, and they were building on a foundation of other research that's been done uh, along the same lines. And they came up with some fascinating responses that in some ways uh, also validated many of the, the, the uh, best practices that are, that are mandated by CFP board around defining the scope of the, the, the relationship and uncovering clients' goals and attitudes. So they actually validated a number of things that are extremely interesting, and they did it with evidence, and, they, and there's a lot one can learn from it. I mean, some of the things they found that uh, are counterintuitive for a lot of people is that clients actually place a high value on having a financial planner who is willing to engage with difficult and emotionally fraught conversations. And furthermore, they place a high value on planners who are willing to introduce those topics. The... The, one of the pieces I loved was also the client's place a very high value on the advisor having a structured process for uncovering their goals and personal attitudes and values and, per, and personal history. They actually value it when they see that there's a structured process, that they're not just like, you know, doing it by the seat of their pants. And, there, and some of the structured processes that one can use have also been validated by other research. They, you know, they found the client's greatly valued, having recommendations positioned in the context of exactly how they related to the client's preferences, values, and goals. Some of these things sound obvious and some of them maybe not so much, but that's one example of research that's been done and there's there's been a lot of it. This year at the uh, FPA annual conference in Baltimore, which is next week, uh, the, the Montgomery Warshower Award is going to be given out by the Journal of Financial Planning. Montgomery Warshower Award is an award that the, that the journal uh, gives every year for the best original research in financial planning. And this year, it's going to uh, Sarah Acevedo and Martin C. And I, uh, I think Martin is still at Kansas State. Uh, Sarah got, earned her doctorate at Kansas State. Then she went to Virginia Tech, and she's now at, at Texas Tech as an academic. What they did is they took some of the, the grounded research that's been done in the area of positive psychology and translated that into the financial planning realm. 
And that was the basis of the doctoral research that Sarah did. And it's fascinating. And there are amazing insights. I mean, there isn't time here to go into all of them. Uh, but her paper has already been published in the journal earlier this year. And I, uh, you know, I highly recommend that anyone who's interested look it up. And so, you know, the author is Sarah Acevedo, A-S-A-B-E-D-O, and Martin C, S-E-A-Y. Um, and they, they occasionally give presentations. Sarah just gave one a few weeks ago at Far West Roundup at um, the UC Santa Cruz campus. And um, again, another example. Yet another, a colleague of mine, um, Cheryl Holland, along with a psychologist who she's done a lot of work with, they did research in which they took the trans-theoretical model of change, uh, which was is usually no, it's often no referenced by the by its original author Prochaska. So the Prochaska's trans-theoretical model for change, or TTM, which is a well-established model for how change can be affected from a psychological perspective in individuals, and they applied that, they translated that into the financial planning context. Uh, in their article, specific, specifically around the context of overspending clients. So I, I won't ramble on longer, but maybe maybe among the links that you provide, I can provide references to, to some of these articles that, that give you some really grounded approaches for uh, doing deep discovery and then also helping to, you know, sort of help modify or manage client behavior so that they can more effectively reach their goals. I guess I'll say one more thing, just because I want to make a plug for Golden Gate University. We have a number of a number of classes that are very much structured around this realm that I call financial planning 2.0. Uh, Rick Kaler, uh, who uh, I think a lot of people have heard of, uh, he wrote a book that, that's widely disseminated called the, the Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, he, he teaches a class every spring at Golden Gate University called Facilitating Financial Health. And in that class, he incorporates a lot of this research uh, beyond what I've even been talking about about how we can engage our clients in a way that, that helps uh, move them in a healthier direction, healthier financial direction. Um, and again, a lot of this research is focused on the interior. And he teaches that via our e-learning platform, which means anyone in the country can take it. Um, and then Sandra Davis, who is widely known as the, the sort of the queen of coaching, uh, she teaches a, a coaching skills for financial planners class uh, also through our e-learning platform that is available to anyone by open enrollment. And it's also involves sort of a deep dive into the research and then, but, but most importantly, sort of practical uh, applications, you know, developing the skills to actually apply those in your practice. So, and there are lots of other training programs, obviously, Carol Anderson, who was the co-author of the very first study I mentioned, you know, she's the founder of Money Quotient, a company that's based on the, some of the research that she's done and, and others have done into how to do good structured discovery. So um, that's my, again, my long-winded way of saying there are actually a lot of tools and a lot of resources out there for people who want to do better discovery, who want to be better change agents and coaches in their clients' lives, but who want to do it from a more grounded and evidence-based perspective. So really focusing on that evidence rather than just, in my experience with clients, I found that this is what works best. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, the fact that something kind of seems to have worked out for you, that you, you, know, you tried something and it seemed to work out, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with that up to a point. If something seems to be working, do it. But if you can either validate your approach with some evidence or you could find maybe a, a slightly different approach. Um, where there is stronger evidence for its efficacy, 
Um, and, and this doesn't just involve the discovery process and, and, and influencing client behavior in a healthier direction. It also involves, you know, some of our more, I'm going to say, quantitative recommendations. But whatever realm it, in whatever realm we're operating, surely we want to be using the best available tools. Uh, I happen to focus sometimes on the behavioral piece just because, you know, the mathematics of financial planning is pretty, is not that complicated. The hard part is actually helping people affect the change that they seek in their lives or help them adapt to the change that's been inflicted on them through an environmental change. Um, and, you know, change is hard. Change is hard. There's a reason that there are a million diet methods. And there's a reason that there's a million different approaches to, to working out and getting healthier. And there's a reason people have personal trainers and workout buddies and personal coaches and life coaches. It's because change is hard. It's a well-established fact. That's another area where there's been a lot of research on change. You know, there was a research by the World Health Organization done that showed that the single biggest cause of disability worldwide was depression. And that the, and that the single biggest cause of depression was an inability to adapt to change, including ordinary life changes. And so it is a reality that change is hard for everyone in every realm. And so if we can take some research-based approaches to helping our clients affect healthy changes in their lives and their financial lives, why would we not be, you know, want to be using the, the, the most powerful tools for that? I'm hearing what you're saying. And I think like, and I think it's great. And I'm like, I want, I want, personally, I want to be, you know, much more involved in this research because I feel like that's been missing from places. Now, can I go to CE programs or, I mean, my, like my local FPA chapter, I mean, is that where I go and really find this information or do I need to be reading these papers or where do you go on a regular basis? That's such a great question. I, I think it's all of the above. You know, you could enroll at, at uh, you could enroll at GGU or, or a lot of other universities through open enrollment if they're, you know, for those at least that are offering these kinds of classes. Certainly go to your local FPA chapter meeting. You know, a lot of these topics, I've presented on these topics Sarah Acevedo's you know, has presented on them. Rick Kaler has. I mean, they're, the, the people who do this and are putting research-based approaches into practice, they are presenting, and they're presenting it at regional conferences and national conferences and at local chapter meetings. Um, but the other thing is to go to the journals. You know, go to the, the Journal of Financial Planning publishes this. The, 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 the entire 40-year archive is available to anyone to download. So all of the articles, most of the articles I'm talking about are, are available for download. And actually, members of FPA, when they go to the journal archive, they have free access to the electronic version of the Financial Services Review, which is a quarterly journal put out by the Academy of Financial Services, uh, a professional association for uh, academics who are teaching in financial planning programs. So, I, you know, I'd say all of the above. Read the articles you know, seek out the articles, read the articles, seek out the authors of those articles when they're presenting at a local chapter or a conference, um, take online classes. Um, you know, all of these things are, are in combination, I think, are the way to go. You have many published articles throughout various places, but there's an article that you published called The Evidence-Based Financial Planning, and it's to learn like a CFP. And one of the lines that you have in here that I just really struck out to me, it says, that it raises a fundamental question of how new knowledge is transmitted, transmitted to practitioners and how they evaluate it. And that how you evaluate it really stuck out to me because I'm not sure that I know how to evaluate research effectively. Like what advice would you give to me or somebody in my spot? Well, so that's, that's a great question. And that's really, 
you know, I've, that's something I present on in conferences. And, and actually, I'm in the midst right now of a, of a short course I teach at GGU called Evaluating Research, Understanding and Using Applied Research in Your Practice. And the focus of the class and the focus of my presentations and the focus of that article, which hopefully we'll link to, is that to be a true profession, we need to have a, a more scientific foundation, a more empirically validated, evidence-based foundation. But that doesn't, but the second proposition is that doesn't mean financial planners all have to become researchers. But what it does mean is that we have to be good consumers of research-based writing. And so the first thing that I think practitioners need to learn to do is to distinguish between an article or a paper they're reading that is research-based and one that's not, one that's more opinion-based. And, you know, it just because of most people haven't been trained to think that way, a lot of people don't, don't see the difference until they've been trained to see the difference. But once you've, once you've learned to distinguish between a, a, an article, a paper, uh, a proposition, if you will, that is research-based, then you need to be able to evaluate that paper on its own merits. And you need to, you need to have a process. You need to ask yourself some questions. You need to be able to, you need to be able to articulate what is the question of interest? What is the problem they were proposing to solve? And how did they formulate that problem? How did they, how did they frame it in terms of the, the way in which they were going to explore it? What kind of, what kind of data did they derive? Uh, and, and was that data, does that data seem like it was appropriate to the question at hand? How did they test the data? Was the methodology by which they tested it the appropriate methodology for the data that they had and the question that, that they were attempting to answer? And then what was the results of that testing? And finally, were the results compelling? And if you found the results compelling, now how are you going to translate that into your daily practice? Once we can learn to be the better consumers of research-based uh, research writing, I think we, we, we're going to be open to constantly evolving our practices in an ever more effective direction, uh, which is to say a, a direction where we're ever more effective at serving our clients and helping them, helping them achieve their goals. Looking at other professions, do other professions already have this kind of academic underpinning to them? Well, if it, they do. I mean, if you look at, the, um, if you look at the, the profession of medicine, for example, the medical journals basically don't publish anything that isn't evidence-based, that isn't the result of, of research, where, the, where, a conclusion isn't, where a conclusion is being drawn by, you know, sort of an empirically validated data-based way. They're all published. That's all they publish. That profession is founded on this idea that medicine, well, there may be an art to medicine, you know, people, and the art part comes in sort of the, what, I'm, what I was saying earlier, the artful application of the best available science, but that there has to be science at its core, that recommendations a physician might make or techniques they might use to solve a medical issue uh, or resolve a medical issue should be based on the best available evidence. And so if you look at their journals, Nothing gets published that's not an evidence-based, research-based article. And physicians, ideally, my, my vision was always that they are well-trained to read and evaluate research-based writing. You know, you, you always have the fantasy, probably from movies and TV, that, uh, you know, faced with a difficult issue, your physician is going to be able to go and, uh, and, and do the appropriate research and come back and say, well, the best available research says this. And I mean, my, my physician certainly, my, my GP certainly does that. I think House MD did that if any, for anyone who watched that show. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, I've had some people say to me, well, it's not so true as you might think or, or might hope. Um, 
but the reality is, you know, not to not to, to be too long-winded, although that's hard for me not to be, but um, I think that's a really good example where the the information that appears in their journals, and there are dozens and dozens of medical journals out there, are all evidence-based, they're all research-based, and physicians have been trained, not necessarily to conduct research. I have a lot of physicians as clients, and some of them have conduct research and some of them don't, and, and not all of them could, but they've all been trained to read research-based writing and derive some conclusions from it that they can apply in their practice with their patients. If I want to learn how to read research, where do I go? Well, so uh, the, the paper, the evidence-based financial planning paper that Elise and I wrote would be a starting point. It, it does provide a framework. Beyond that, I actually think some of it's practice. One of, the, one of the virtues of doctoral study was that over, over the course of several years, I probably read 800 pieces of research-based writing in various related fields. And in each case, I sat down and I mapped it out in sort of in the terms I, I laid out earlier and that are laid out in our article in terms of, okay, what is the key question here? What is the, what is the, what is the question or problem to be solved? How did they, uh, uh, you know, operationalize this? How did they, how did they frame it? What kind of data did they draw? Did they derive? Was it a, was the data was the data set big enough? Was it the right kind of data? How did they test it? Was that the appropriate test? What were the what were the results and what were the conclusions? And and what happens is with practice, and this is one of those things that you know we talk about the practice of financial planning or the practice of any profession. It takes practice to work to, to develop this muscle. But once you've read five or 10 or 20 pieces of research-based writing, you start to get a, a, an ever better sense of whether or not the authors are drawing appropriate conclusions from their testing results. Sometimes they're taking a leap. Sometimes their, their conclusions don't seem to be really all that well connected to the, the results of their testing. And you start to get an ever, ever better sense of that. Because one of the you know, one of the questions you have to ask eventually, and, and again, you, you, your judgment gets better and better with practice, is are the results compelling? You know, was the, was the test results compelling and was, were there conclusions that they draw from those test results? Did they seem connected and supported and are they compelling to me? And is there a connection to my practice? So this is one of the things we do in, in this short course I'm in the midst of right now is every week. The students read three or four or five research-based papers, and then they actually have to write a summary that answers all of those questions, and then we have discussions on this. And along with, I have lectures on very related topics in terms of how to read research-based writing and where to find research-based writing. But now the short version is, it's like a muscle. You have to exercise it. Once you've learned how to recognize and distinguish research-based writing from non-research-based writing, then you just have to dive in and read it you know, read a lot of it. So again, I'll, I'll reference the Journal of Financial Planning. Other than the Financial Services Review, which is really kind of more focused at, on, on the uh, interests of financial planning academics, the only practitioner-oriented journal among the, all of the, you know, half dozen or so major ones that are out there, the only one that has peer-reviewed research-based papers is the Journal of Financial Planning. When you go to the journal, there will be lots of articles that or people's opinions about things. But there's a section that's called contributions. And the contributions section typically has anywhere from two to four papers in there. And those have been peer-reviewed and they're research-based. And I would just start with those. Read three of those. Read six. Read 20 of those. And 
you know, and ask yourself the questions using the framework in our paper, in our article, Evidence-Based Financial Planning. And I, th I think anyone who does that, anyone who devotes the time to work their way through five or 10 or 20 articles in, in a, reading them in a critical way, where you have that framework and you're answering those questions, I think they will find by the time they get to the 10th or the 20th paper that they have a much deeper sense of, of um, uh, they will have improved judgment as to when results are compelling and, and when it's something they may want to incorporate in their practice. What I find so interesting about this conversation is we're talking about to move the profession forward, we have to kind of marry this academic research with the just average per practitioner. And what's so interesting to me is it's like, that's on me to do. Like that's, that's the research is already happening. I'm the one that needs to start consuming it. And even just for the listeners here, I mean, I feel like that's such a tangible takeaway that if we want to get better and we want to improve the profession, we need to be the ones that are consuming this. That is a brilliant, concise conclusion. I, I, I hope everyone takes that to heart. There is research-based writing in the financial planning realm already out there, and new stuff is coming out every month and every year. But we have to be responsible for seeking it out, reading it, and reading it critically, and then deciding whether or not we're going to incorporate it in our practice. And even finding if you're in a study group, I mean, this seems like a great thing to have a study group do, like have a piece of research that you guys all talk about, or local FPA next-gen events. I mean, you're always, we're always looking for topics for that. I mean, this could be a really neat way to kind of bring in that research into the communities that are already existing. I, I could not agree more. And to, and to have the group, you know, next-gen study groups or, 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 you know, other financial planning study groups, um, make that a practice, almost like a book club, if you will. You know, in our firm, we have a thing we call Yeskibui University or Yebu U for short. And one of the things that the financial planning team does is we will all read some piece of research-based writing and, uh, and then we'll evaluate it critically and we'll discuss it and we'll decide whether or not it's going to change the way we do things. And that's so great. One of the, one of the podcasts that was just released, there's talking about how you need to take initiative within your firm. And like, that's a great way to take initiative in your firm to say, why don't we incorporate research into our staff meetings? I'll present it. So there's some really great ways I think young advisors especially can really add value to their firms and really help their career. Oh, my God. I, you know, you're just conjuring images for me now. That I, I'd love the idea of people on the financial planning team in any firm taking turns, taking the lead. Everyone has to read it, but someone taking the lead on, you know, each person taking the lead on some different research-based uh, uh, paper and then putting together a PowerPoint presentation and presenting to the others, you know, here's the problem they were addressing. Here's how they went about it. Here was, you know, here are the results of their tests and their conclusions. What do we think? Um, I mean, that's, that would be fantastic. I think that should be a norm. I think that should be like an, an expectation in every financial planning practice, in every financial planning firm. There's an expectation that we're going to continue to actually um, seek out digest and incorporate new research as it emerges. Sure beats out the lunch and learn that a wholesaler sponsor every <laughs> week or month that so many places have. I couldn't agree more. And I, and I put, I put a, I set a high bar for those lunch and learns. And um, uh, for, for that matter, anytime I'm involved with finding speakers for a chapter or a conference, I set the same high bar. It's like this, this, this needs to be evidence-based. 
And some firms are better than others. You know, I, I probably shouldn't name names, but it's like Dimensional Fund Advisors we do some work with. They've got like 32 PhDs on staff and, and everything they present, if you get them to come out and present to your firm or your clients or, or your local chapter or whatever, you know, their stuff is 100% evidence-based. And then, you know, your local insurance wholesaler, again, not to, not to say there isn't a lot of really good research in the areas of risk management insurance and with, with more needed, I might add, uh, you know, but a lot of times they're coming out there giving you their rule of thumb or their personal opinion about how much life insurance you should have or how much umbrella liability you should have. And it's like, I don't want someone's rule of thumb. You know, I want something tangible. It's, it's like I did that long-term care. Go do a search in the journal archives under long-term care. And there actually are, the last time I looked, I came up with three or four really good sort of quantitative evidence-based approaches to how to think about the long-term care question. Um, you know, if you want to be evidence-based, and I think, I think in our heart of hearts, we all do, um, you got to take the next step. You got to seek it out and, you, and try and use it. Well, as we kind of wrap up, is there anything that you have, just general advice or even kind of more thoughts on this that you would share with the young planner or the career changer who's really just trying to navigate their way through the financial planning practice, the financial planning profession? I think a couple of things. One, pursue what we've just been talking about for the last 45 minutes. Uh, um, you know, pursue the, the, the most rigorous evidence-based sources of knowledge and practice that you can. Pay attention to what's being published. Read it critically. Use it when it makes sense, when you find it compelling. Um, focus on your education. Focus on, on attending conferences or webinars, uh, at least those that look like they're going to be substantive. Because it's, we're living in a world where we have to be continually improving ourselves to be good practitioners. And the second thing I'll say is be involved in your community. Be involved in your financial planning community. Go to a chapter meeting. Go to a conference, whether, whether it's a NAPFA study group or an FPA chapter or an FPA study group or a next-gen study group. Be involved. Be actively involved, not only as an attendee, as, a, as an active member of the community. Be a volunteer. Because one of the things I found is that, and I, you know, as I said, I've been practicing for over a quarter of a century, and, I've, and through my leadership roles in FPA, I had the privilege of meeting financial planners and chapter leaders all over the country. I will tell you that the people who are most successful are the ones who, first of all, keep their batteries charged. They're excited about what they do. People like to work with people who are excited about what they do. And secondly, they just tend to be better practitioners when they feel that deeper connection to their professional community, when they have a deep professional network when they're active, not just as, as attendees at conferences or, or chapter meetings, but as volunteers. It just makes you a better practitioner. So you, you have to have an outward focus, in my opinion. Even in your earliest days, even when it's day one, you've just started your practice and you're in a panic, how you're going to find your first client. Stay involved in your, in your professional community. It will make you a better practitioner. Thanks for joining us on this episode of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? As we mentioned last week, be on the lookout for the real client case studies that we'll be sharing with you soon. I'll talk with you again next week.